You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we, we long for what we just sang to be true, that we would be known by our love. We know that begins with your love in us, encountering your love for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray now then the reading and preaching of your word that we would encounter love made known to us through his grace and that we'd respond to your word today with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Dear church, uh, I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you, just like Becca did if you're visiting today, um, on this first Sunday of 2024. It's also the first Sunday of Epiphany. In fact, I know that some of you love Epiphany so much, just turn to your neighbor and say, happy Epiphany. Um, Actually, most of you are probably like, what in the world is that? Um, So, you know, we we choose at third, along with millions of other Christians worldwide, um, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, to use the church calendar, the liturgical year, to order our time differently. This is just one simple way that we're saying that we want to keep out of step with the world as followers of Jesus by ordering our, even our years around um, not the movements of capitalism, but around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for the last six weeks, uh, we've been first in Advent, which anticipates the coming of the Messiah, and then we've been in Christmas Tide, which celebrates the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Um, and Epiphany is now this season that runs from January 6th uh, for about six weeks to Ash Wednesday, when we'll begin Lent. Uh, epiphany means, in the New Testament, um, New Testament Greek, Epiphany means manifestation. Manifestation. And so what we focus on in Epiphany is the life of Jesus, his life, his work, his ministry, his miracles. We focus on the fact that in and through Jesus, this, this, this God-man, God is manifested. His kingdom, his character. We see in, in Jesus' healings, in his teaching, in his in his powerful work. We see the healing, the grace, the mercy, the renewal of God's kingdom that is coming into the world through this person, Jesus, Christians believe. God's kingdom is coming into creation. We're celebrating his renewing work. So that's what we focus on in Epiphany. Also this Sunday, we're starting this little three-week sermon series um, on a, a little-known book you've probably never really heard preached about. I haven't. In, on, called the book of Philemon. Um, maybe you don't even know where it is. If your pages get stuck between Titus and Hebrews, you'll miss it um, because it's literally just one page. Um, and I actually think the reason why I wanted to do this book in the beginning of Epiphany is because this book is about new life. It's about the, the, the new kingdom power of Jesus coming into our lives and the world to renew us, to renew everything. When a new year starts, uh, we talk about change, we talk about new habits and new resolutions and, and new diets. And, and let's just be honest, uh, very little of this translates into lasting transformation for any of us. Um, and yet this is a book about true change, about lasting transformation that God is bringing into our lives and into the world. And the power, the engine for that change is... Grace, grace in Jesus is the power for lasting change. In fact, if you look at this book and if you have it in front of you or look at it later, 
the very first word right after the salutation in verse three is grace to you, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. And the very last word, verse 25, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's a literary device called an inclusio, a thematic envelope, if you will, enveloping the whole message of this book around this common theme of grace. Grace changes everything, grace to you. So we're gonna uh, just spend three weeks going through this book together. We're gonna start uh, with verses one through seven. So if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. Philemon, one. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Two, Philemon, our dear brother and fellow worker, also to Ephia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So if you've ever been to an art museum, uh, maybe you've been to the National Gallery in DC, maybe you've been to the VMFA, maybe you've um, just taken an art history class, you'll know that in the history of art, something really revolutionary happened during the season of the Renaissance. Uh, Prior to the 15th century um, in the Western Hemisphere, almost all art that was produced was what you could call in in the first and second dimension. It's one and two dimensional art, right? It was often, that art, art that is made in uh, medieval period and ancient period are often very beautiful and yet um, they portray life in a flat perspective where there is not much uh, significant spacing between objects in the foreground and the background where there's very little use of shadow, very little use of depth. It's one and two D artistic depictions. Well, what happened in the Renaissance um, was that artists began to experiment with new ways of painting. Um, Kids, I'm sure, have you ever heard of the Mona Lisa or seen pictures of the Mona Lisa before? It's in the Louvre in Paris. Um, And you might, as kids, I remember looking at that and being like, what's the big deal? I could paint that. Um, But the the reason why that, that painting is so famous and it's so revolutionary is because da Vinci began to experiment and began to use an entirely different way of using the canvas. He began to do something called sort of stereoscopic painting on the campus in which he, on the canvas in which he brought a depth and a fullness to a figure that no one had ever seen before. The use of full dimensional depiction, three dimensional art transformed the history of art forever. Friends, why am I telling you about this? As we contemplate the present and the future of Christianity in the late modern world, in 21st century America that we live in, I am in great concern. We are in danger of reducing, flattening Christianity from the beautiful, full, three-dimensional message that it is into this flat, one-dimensional caricature. How do we do that? We flatten the full dimensions of Christianity in so many ways. We, we flatten it into just one little aspect of our life, our piety on Sundays. We do not let it spill out to affect 
all the ways that we function in the world as workers, as investors, as parents, as spouses, as friends, as citizens. We reduce and flatten Christianity into our personal, private faith without bringing it into the context of the beloved community. We flatten Christianity into abstract truths about God that do not impact our relationships, our ethics, our decisions about money and economics and power and politics. We flatten Christianity to be strictly about our future eternity in the sky someday, rather than allow it to completely reshape and renew and reform our present reality. All of these, I believe, are illegitimate 1D caricatures of Christianity. And much like the Renaissance recovered depth in art, the church must always recover and reclaim that our faith is a full, comprehensive, in-depth, three-dimensional, beautiful, comprehensive message that has to do with absolutely everything. This is why, as a church, we say, we're called together for what? The renewal of what? All things, all things come under the renewing kingdom power of Jesus Christ. That's what the epiphany is about. That's what the gospel is about. Grace changes everything. And there's hardly a book that depicts that more beautifully than the book of Philemon that unpacks this three-dimensional vision of Christianity. As N.T. Wright, the biblical scholar, says of Philemon, no part of the New Testament more clearly demonstrates integrated Christian thinking and living. Integrated Christian thinking and living. That's what I want to unpack with you these first few weeks of the year. So let me just give you some background um, on this book. This book is actually a letter. Uh, it's the shortest letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it at the end of his life in about AD 60 when he was a prisoner in Rome. Um, he is writing to an old friend of his, a guy named Philemon, who is a member of the church in Colossae. Actually, this book probably came bundled with the book of Colossians when it was delivered uh, to the church there. Philemon is a member of the church. We know from context that Paul converted him, probably on his mission in Ephesus. And Philemon um, is clearly a very wealthy person with a house big enough for the church to meet in. He is also a slave owner. Now, we're going to talk about this in depth in the coming two weeks, but slavery was a very, very inst different institution in first century Greece and Rome than it was in America. It was not race-based chattel slavery as it was in the pre-Civil War states. And we'll unpack that in the next couple of weeks. And yet, slavery still in the ancient world was one of the great evils of the ancient world in which people could own others. So what happened was, is that one of Philemon's slaves, a guy named Onesimus, had escaped. Uh, we learn from the context later in the book that he most likely also robbed his master, Philemon. So he robbed him, he escaped, he was a fugitive. And somehow he made his way to Rome. And somehow, whether because he sought Paul out or whether because in God's providence he arranged this meeting, he meets Paul, who's under house arrest, and he's converted. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And not only that, he becomes a dear friend of Paul and a, and a fellow partner in ministry. And so Paul is now put in this unusual situation in which he has this fugitive slave from a dear friend of his figuring out how he's going to negotiate this reconciliation and ultimately restoration of this man's wholeness. So there's at least three levels of change that Paul is calling for in this letter. He is taking this letter, he's sending it with Onesimus, in Onesimus's own hand, back to his own master, ultimately asking him for, to reconcile with him, to forgive him, and ultimately to release him from slavery. 
for service in the gospel. So, as I see it, there's at least three levels of change that Paul is calling for in this letter. First, personal change. He's, every time someone encounters Jesus Christ, they're called to dramatic personal change, to reorient their life, their values, their vision. Second, relational change. Paul calls for radical forms of relational restoration in this relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. Forgiveness, reconciliation, reparation, restitution. He calls for these things in his relationship. And then finally, socioeconomic change. Paul lays the groundwork ultimately for a complete social and economic upheaval in the ancient world that the gospel alone can bring. So personal change, relational change, socioeconomic change, that's what this book is about, this powerful three-dimensional version of Christianity that brings change to the whole of our lives. Grace changes everything. The gospel is not just this safe, one-dimensional message about going to heaven when you die. It is the power of God's kingdom infiltrating our world to renew all things. And that's what we're going to unpack in the coming weeks. So let's just jump into the body of the letter. Because this is so short, I can actually talk about every verse. Don't worry, I won't talk very long about any of them. But 8 through 20 is really the body of the text. We'll get into that next week. But today we're just going to look at verses 7, which is kind of the intro, okay? So look at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner in Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Kids, back then in the ancient world, instead of writing your name at the end of the letter, you wrote it at the beginning of the letter, okay? So Paul is the writer. Um, It's an unusual opening. This is the only letter of Paul's that he refers to himself as prisoner rather than apostle. The likelihood is, is that he's sort of taken off his authoritative apostle hat, and he's really addressing Philemon as a dear friend. He's appealing to him. And then he says, Timothy, Timothy did not write the letter. He's just kind of his sidekick. He's like there with him, okay? Second, he says to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also Ephia, that is Philemon's wife, um, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. We don't know who that was. He was not a soldier. It's just sort of like a friendly phrase, sort of like, you know, he's a great trooper, you know, that, that, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, verse two, and he says, and to the church that meets in your house. Now, um, Philemon and his wife were hosts of a house church that met in their spacious home. And what I think is so remarkable about this is that Paul is already being so subversive because even though this is a letter just to one guy, Philemon, he is very clear that he wants this letter read to the whole church because he knows this is going to have wide collective impact and the way that Philemon responds to his former slave is going to have dramatic communal impact on the culture of the whole community. So he wants the whole thing read to the whole church, right? Verse three, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just one note here. Um, Grace to you was a common Greek salutation, whereas peace, shalom, was a Jewish salutation. So the fact that Paul is putting these things together is already this subtle and scandalous signal of the power that grace has to reconcile previously unreconcilable people, right? Grace and peace through Jesus Christ. Verse four. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. So here Paul begins just like saying all these nice things about Philemon, like reminding him of the good things he knows about him, his love for people, his faith in Jesus. He wants to assure Philemon that he knows his faith is genuine. And let's be honest, he's buttering him up for the heavy demands (laughs) that he's about to make on him. Finally, verse six, and this is really the heart of the letter in many ways. Many commentators say this is the key verse in the letter. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share 
for the sake of Christ. Now, if you're reading along in your Bible, you might have a very different translation and you might wonder, what's going on here? It's because this is such a difficult verse to translate. It's um, translated in quite different ways. I think the best translation, I read a lot, a lot of different translations this week and read a lot of different rationales for them. Um, I'm just gonna throw up there the translation from the biblical scholar N.T. Wright. I think it's the best one that I've seen. He says this, um, my prayer is this, that our fellowship in the faith, that's the Greek word koinonia, that our fellowship in the faith may have its powerful effect in realizing every good thing that is at work in us to lead us into the king. In many ways, this sums up the whole book. And in some ways, it sums up the whole theology of grace that Paul subscribes to. Grace is so difficult to understand because it's so counterintuitive. On the one hand, grace says, first, the first word of grace is, come as you are. Come as you are. When Paul says our fellowship in the faith, he means both you, Philemon, and me, Paul, have been captured by the faith. What is the faith? It is the gospel. It is the revolutionary message of God's good news that has been announced in Jesus. That in this person, Jesus, God has chosen to be for us in all humanity. In Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God has reconciled the world to himself. And now the Father's arms are open wide. And he says to every single human on the planet, welcome. Come on in. The front door is open. He invites every single one of us, no matter your background, your past, your story, your ethnicity, he invites all of us in through his grace. He receives us as we are. He received Paul as he was. And who was Paul? Do y'all remember who Paul was? He was a hypocritical religious murderer who was hunted, hunting down and killing God's people. God received him as he was. Who was Onesimus? I mean, sorry, Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy slave owner, captive to an evil economic system that abused fellow human beings for profit. And yet God received him as he was. Onesimus, grace received Onesimus, a fugitive and a thief. God's grace and Jesus received all three of these men just as they were, and grace receives you just as you are. There's no qualifications. There's no background checks. There's no people who are too far gone. In fact, if you think that there is something, there is some sin that is too far gone, that is out of reach of God's grace, then I dare say you're not in God's grace because you don't get it because there's a wideness in God's mercy so wide that all are welcome in. The church, as Paul calls it here, the fellowship of grace, is a new kind of community, one in which a murderer, a slaveholder, and a thief can all be welcomed in and sit around a common table of grace, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all welcomed in through grace. The first word of the Christian faith is come as you are. But there's another word that grace gives. Because Paul goes on to say, my prayer is that our partnership in the faith may have its powerful effect in realizing every good thing that is at work in us to lead us into the king. What's he talking about here? He's talking about change. He's talking about how the gospel of grace begins to work effectively in us to produce change. The gospel is not an inert stone that is put in our pocket to hold until we die. The gospel is a living seed that is planted in us that begins to multiplicative produce fruit throughout our lives. 
It has effect, it has power. Grace is meant to change us. That's why he says, I love that phrase, to lead us into the king, which means we are growing up more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, becoming more like him, resembling him, becoming the people he intends us to be. Again, think about these three men. Yes, grace received each one of them as they were, but did they stay as they were? Heavens no. Each of them were deeply challenged to make significant and sometimes life-altering changes in obedience to God. Paul, confronted by Jesus Christ, went from persecuting the church to now being imprisoned for the church and ultimately losing his life for the God that he once rejected. Philemon, a successful and wealthy businessman, is challenged to reorient his life, extend forgiveness, forfeit his rights, and ultimately disrupt the economic stability and profitability of his slave-holding household in obedience to Christ. And we know that he did. Why? Because we have the letter. He never would have kept it if he had rejected Paul's demands. Onesimus could have just safely fled away. He's challenged to return to the man who once enslaved him, trusting that God will be at work in Philemon's heart to bring about a new and surprising result. So each of these men, Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, are challenged towards tremendous and disruptive life change toward becoming the new kind of person they never would have been able to come on their own. So yeah, grace receives you as you are, and yet it never leaves you as you are. The Father's arms are open wide, and then we begin to follow the narrow road because grace challenges, grace disrupts, grace overturns, grace rocks. As Paul reminds us in verse three, Jesus is Lord, kurios, which means he is in charge of everything. Every part of our lives comes under his rule and his gracious reign as king. So here's what I want you to consider as we look at this book the next few weeks. How might God be challenging you this year? What change does he want to produce in you? What bad habit or anxious compulsion or selfish attitude or destructive behavior or apathetic little corner of your life might God be bringing under the power of his grace? What does God want to change in you? And if, and if you don't know, ask the person you live with. They probably know. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a story um, about that the preacher Halfred Leddick tells about the French army in the 16th century. You know, during the French Huguenot Wars, um, whole armies were just marched into the rivers to be baptized in order to wage religious wars on behalf of others. Horrible stuff, right? So the French army was marched into the, the river to be baptized, and many of the French soldiers held their ha hands over the, the waters, refusing to get their hands wet. And so that reason for that was so they could walk out and say, this hand has not been baptized, and they could swing their swords and their axes with bloodthirsty and murderous rage upon their enemies. This hand has not been baptized. And I just think we all do the same thing. You know, we hold certain parts of our lives outside the baptismal waters. So we can continue to live as we want to live, control what we want to control, hold certain parts of our lives outside the realm of Christ's lordship. It may be your wallet or your lifestyle or your marriage or your work or your politics or your internet habits. There are all things that we have not allowed to go under the waters of baptismal transformation. And you have been bought at a price. You are no longer your own. You've been saved by grace. Everything we are, everything we have now belongs to God, belongs to Jesus Christ, and that affects everything. How you do your work, how you use your money, 
how you make decisions, how you engage in politics, how you treat your body, how you treat people of different races and classes, how you handle conflict, how we treat the poor and the immigrant and the refugee. Everything now falls under the transforming power of grace as God does his effective work in us. John Ortberg is fond of saying, the main thing, the main thing that God gets out of your life is the person you are becoming. The main thing that God gets out of your life is the person you are becoming. That's God's aim, to work his change in you, that grace is effective to grow you up into the king. So what does God want to do in you this year? Who is the person that God is making you into? That person, that person as Christ through his spirit works in you, that is the person that you are ultimately meant to be. So my dear third family, listen, listen, let's reject together one dimensional, reductionistic, flat Christianity that keeps the gospel of grace safe in faith and controlled and manageable. Let's embrace the full, beautiful, three-dimensional gospel of grace. Let's let it change us, challenge us, disrupt us, make us new. As we come to this table, praise be to God, grace receives us as we are, and yet thanks be to God, it does not leave us as we are. It produces change. It calls us forth. It, God invites you to open up to his renewing work, to allow the light of his grace into the darkest places of your life, to let him do the work of change that only he can do. Thanks be to God. Grace to you. Grace changes everything. So let's pray as we come to the table. Loving God, we do praise you and thank you that you hold your arms wide in welcoming everyone in. And then we praise you that as you welcome us in, you deposit your seed of grace, the gospel in us, that it might produce, create a new kind of person. We invite you to do that work in us as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.